Welcome to Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports with your host, Rob Elwood. Join us as we open the door and take an unforgettable journey to unlock the full power of sports on and off the field. Listen to personal stories and reflections from incredible leaders who are sure to move and inspire you. So listen and enjoy another episode of Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports. Uh, I mean, on my memories of, of being a kid there in the fireplace, and especially around Christmas, uh, my father was uh, bigger than life. He, he six foot three, two hundred fifteen when he played. He was a catcher in the big leagues, and he had these massive hands. And he, he was a really loving guy, uh, and we all just adored him. And my mother was fascinating as well. So uh, I was the youngest of five, uh, so you know I, I came up last, um, but still just a fascinating way to grow up and uh, uh, my, my siblings and I are still all very close and uh, we all have these wonderful memories and realize how lucky we were to uh, to live in a place where if the doorbell rang it wasn't impossible that it might be Stan Musial. Okay, who are you nation? I am extremely honored to introduce our special guest today, Bob Wilbur. Bob, are you ready to put your game face on and join our team? I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. As Bob says, he is extraordinarily fortunate to have spent his entire life in sports. Raised as the son of a former Major League ball player, Bob earned a full athletic scholarship to Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, graduating with a degree in television and radio broadcasting before embarking on a professional baseball career that included playing, coaching, and scouting. For the past 30 years, he has enjoyed a successful and scenic ride through the world of sports marketing, sports management, and public relations for sports franchises, facilities, and organizations. Since 1997, Bob has been a team manager, PR rep, writer, and blogger in the world of the NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series, expanding his skill set and honing his craft. As Bob says, to get to this point, he has consistently followed the mantra that it is far better to do what you love and do it to the best of your ability than to follow a generic course that takes you to places you are expected to be. Bob, powerful introduction there. I just gave a brief introduction about you, but please take a moment, introduce yourself, and let Who Are You Nation know what you're up to these days. Well, you captured it pretty well with, with that bio. I'm, uh, I'm just an extraordinarily fortunate guy. To have been, uh, you know, you can't pick your parents, and uh, I was fortunate enough, as were my siblings, to to be raised by two wonderful parents. We we no longer have either one of them with us, but uh, my father was a lifelong baseball man. He played nearly ten years in the big leagues, uh, and then went on. He, he never really worked outside of baseball. After that, he was a minor league manager, uh, scout. He was a coach. Uh, he's also one of, uh, I think only two undefeated managers in the history of major league baseball at one and oh, <laughs> managed the Texas Rangers, uh, for one game, uh, after they fired Whitey Herzog and, uh, he was their triple A manager at the time. So for one day as a junior in high school, I was, I was pretty big man on campus cause my dad was a big league manager, but, uh, the next day they hired Billy Martin and, and that dream came to an end. But, uh, <laughs> So I, I uh, my mom, my mother was a wonderful writer and a, owned her own PR agency and was also a, a radio personality. So between the two of them, I got the athletic genes and and the communication skills and uh, have just kind of parlayed that into a, a course where I never I never really plotted a, a line through uh, the future as to where I was going to end up. I, I really thought I was going to play ten years in the big leagues and then go right into the broadcast booth. That was my original plan. It was the only plan I ever had. Unfortunately, I, I didn't quite 
and do that. <laughs> my, I was a minor league ball player at the, at the very best and uh, scuffled along in Class A ball for a while and then uh, scouted for the Blue Jays for four years and then just decided it was time to go see what was out there in the sports marketing world. And I've just followed my gut uh, for the last 20 or 30 years and just, you know, whenever opportunities came up, if it seemed like something that would be fun, uh, that's what I did. And I've uh, been all over the map in terms of running franchises. I was the general manager of two different professional indoor soccer teams. Uh, I've got into racing when the commissioner of the major indoor soccer league took a job as the president at one of the racetracks on the NHRA tour, which is in Topeka. It's called Heartland Park. And he brought me in there to to be the general manager of the track. I had never seen a drag race in my life, and by this time I'm in my 30s, and I'd uh, never seen a drag race, and only watched it a couple times on TV. And But he wanted me to come in there to, to, to run the place and get sponsorships and sell tickets, and he, neither one of us really knew anything about racing, but we figured we could learn it on the fly, and we did. And that got me into it, and I uh, uh, went from there. I wanted to work for a team, and I started at the very bottom in this profession because no one knew me, um, doing public relations and management for a couple of funny car drivers and uh, went back into indoor soccer for a while after that first initial foray didn't really work out very well um, because I was such an unknown and you basically have to work for free and I wasn't that well off to do that for much more than a year and uh, and then since 1997 I've I've been the team manager and PR guy for two different uh, funny car teams on the NHRA tour and it's become my lifestyle and it's become my life and uh, it's really kind of been a fun ride at this point and it's it's ongoing. It sounds it. Wow, a lot of opportunities, a lot of open doors, and it seems like at uh, every moment you were able to take advantage of those and thus created your path and goes to your mantra, as we said, that it's better to do what you love, and it seems like you really did follow that path, and I can't wait to get a little bit more deep into that story as we continue here as we speak about life lessons of sports and what you've learned from those experiences. But to officially put our game face on, Bob, could you please provide us with a motivational or inspirational quote, something that's meant a lot to you along your journey in life? Um, I'm not really a motivational, inspirational quote guy. Um, I never have been. You know, there's people in this world that make a good living writing self-help motivational books. And <laughs> my, my theory has always been that that's got to come from within. Uh, everybody's different. So what motivates you might not motivate me. And um, with that in mind, I, you know, I tried a couple times when I was younger to read some of those books. I'm like, this isn't, this isn't for me. And, and, and no matter what you say is going to motivate me. If I can't motivate myself and, and guide myself through this thing we call life, then, then that's my problem. And, and I'm not going to find the answer in a book. I think the most important quote that anybody ever gave me was my mother said this first, and she's one of a million who have said this, but she was the first to tell me when in high school, I, I kind of discovered that I was going to be a pretty good writer and my mom was a good writer. And, and the first thing she told me when I started writing short stories and, and uh, putting stuff together for newspapers was just write what you know, don't step outside of your experience. If you write what you know, people understand it as being personal. And so I've, I've always followed that. I write two different blogs right now that are very popular and both of them are centered on whatever I know. I don't try to be anything I'm not. And, uh, and that's what's made me the writer I am today. Um, the other, if I had another quote, it was one, it was from me. I was interviewed once and someone said, Ex explain, uh, explain why you do what you do and why you've done what you've done. And I said, look, if you know, if you love your job, it's not work. So in my mind, you should love your job. Yep. And, and I have followed that mantra. I have always done what I wanted to do 
sometimes it doesn't make you a very good living. Uh, you know, I've gone broke a couple of times doing what I love, but uh, in the end, uh, I'm a very satisfied guy. I could hear the passion in your voice, and it really is about the experience in the now, but also then reflecting back and being very happy with the choices you've made, and that's what I'm hearing, and fortunate enough, as you mentioned, to have a mother that said, basically, to use a sports analogy, is stay within yourself, stay within what you know, and don't try to go too far, and we always see it, we see it sometimes behind the scenes, we see it on TV, we see it elsewhere in our own lives, when you try to get out of that comfort zone, it's no, it's not saying we can't take risks, right, Bob, but it's, it is saying, it is saying, know what you know and nail it and focus right. so really exactly. really yep. do like that and it uh it's very applicable to what we're talking about today so speaking of which can you invite us into your childhood home it sounds like a very interesting family back then and what it was yeah. like inside the house and then as a 12 13 year old just being a part of the neighborhood and playing sports and being a part of the community this could be a book <laughs> and people tell me all the time I, I need to write one. And, and Here we go. through my blogs, uh, there's one called Bob on baseball that I write for our family charity. And, uh, and I have delved into this a lot of, of what it was like to grow up as a Wilbur in Kirkwood, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. We lived there because after world war two, the first team my father played for in the big leagues was the Cardinals. So they put down roots there and bought a little suburban house, and uh, and we never left, even though my dad would go off after that playing for various other teams or scouting or coaching, and he would often leave in the spring and come home in the fall. And uh, But we lived on a perfect little Brady Bunch cul-de-sac uh, in a split-level, modern, contemporary 50s home, and it was the epicenter of sports in our neighborhood. Um, everyone knew that's where you went on any given summer day. You know, we didn't have cell phones. We we couldn't, as kids, we didn't even call each other. But the bicycles would start to arrive in our driveway in the morning. And I had, of course, access to tons of equipment, thanks to my dad. And we would, whatever the sport, whatever the season was, we could play all day uh, and make up our own rules. I and mean, what a valuable thing that was. We didn't have to be organized. We, we learned how to organize ourselves. And, you know, when when you're 12 years old, you could play baseball with as few as four people if you adjusted the rules to fit that. Uh, not too far from our house was an open field where we were allowed to play. Um, and, and we would just go up there and play till my sister came out and whistled. And she, she was one of those people who could put her fingers in her mouth and whistle so loud you could hear it from a mile away. <laughs> and that meant it was dinner time or lunchtime. And we went back home. Um, we'd just be out there all day playing, just playing sports, real sports, whether it was football in the street, basketball in the driveway. Inside the house, it was always extremely familial and warm. Uh, it was just a great place. And uh, I mean, on my memories of, of being a kid there in the fireplace and especially around Christmas, uh, my father was uh, bigger than life. He, he six foot three, 215 when he played, he was a catcher in the big leagues and he had these massive hands and he, he was a really loving guy. Uh, and we all just adored him. And my mother was fascinating as well. So uh, I was the youngest of five, uh, so you know I, I came up last, um, but still, just a fascinating way to grow up. And uh, uh, my, my siblings and I are still all very close, and uh, we all have these wonderful memories and realize how lucky we were to uh, to live in a place where, if the doorbell rang, it wasn't impossible that it might be Stan Musial. <laughs> <laughs> And that's and that happened a few times. So uh, my my oldest brother Dell went on to play Big Ten football at Purdue uh, and baseball. He ended up being a baseball player, signing with the Phillies. 
Uh, and his roommate and best friend in college was Bob Greasy. He was his backup quarterback at Purdue. So, you know, to have Bob Greasy come spend Thanksgiving with us, um, you know, literally to have Stan Musial knock on the door, that's kind of how I grew up. My mom was on the radio, so you get in the car and there's your mom talking to you from the speaker. Uh, you know, that, that's how I grew up, and it was uh, – we weren't rich. You know, back then, my dad usually had to work a winter job. Um, right. and so we were very middle class or maybe even a little bit lower sometimes because, you know, back then scouts and coaches didn't make a lot of money. Um, but it always felt like we had the best of everything. And, and that starts with love. And that's, that's where it came from. I could see how that could turn into a book and potentially even a small documentary and movie. There's a lot going on there and all very exciting. And again, I can hear the passion and the excitement in reliving those memories through your head. And I'm sure you're very close to your siblings today. And, and when you get together, have uh, some fantastic memories of it all. So what about during that time when so much is going on and was there a job? Did you have a job before high school or during high school? If so, what was it? Your first job? No, I didn't. I didn't work in high school. Um, my first job was probably at the school newspaper at Southern Illinois Edwardsville. Um, I worked there as a, an editor and writer. Uh, and then I was, uh, believe it or not, I was an usher at Bush Stadium and the St. Louis Arena. <laughs> that was really my first go-to-work job, and that was when I was a sophomore, junior in college. Um, and so I, I saw, I think, almost every home game the old Spirits of St. Louis ABA basketball team ever played because <laughs> I was an usher in the arena for all those games. Right. So uh, that was put on my funny-looking blue suit and get in the car and go to work job, and that was the first one I ever had. <laughs> and then how about yourself? What were, you, were you concentrated just on baseball, or were you playing other sports as well? No, I was, I was kind of, by the time I got to high school, I was a baseball player. Uh, both of my brothers played Big Ten football. They were both very successful quarterbacks. I wasn't quite built as well as either one of them. I was, I was a typical kind of lanky outfielder and didn't want to get killed playing football. So yep. I stuck with baseball, and, and that's the only sport I played other than, you know, some intramurals in college. But, uh, but I was a baseball player. Got it. Got it. Great. So when did it all click? I like to ask this question, and it, it really comes down to how you decipher it. But when did it click that baseball in this situation was going to be for you, and especially going off to play at the higher levels? And another way of answering this is is when did it click that uh, you're going to become this, as, as you described, and I, I, I don't even want to attempt to <laughs> recount the different jobs that you had, all self-picked and the opportunities that open up, all very positive, but it clicked that this was going to be what you were going to get into, which was writing and, and being in PR yeah. and everything else. Can you tell us that story? Uh, the first half of that question, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess here that you've never heard this answer before. It clicked for me that I was going to be a baseball player when I was six. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I was in first grade, and there was no first grade baseball team. There was no T-ball back then. Even in first or second grade, we played regular baseball with pitchers. So I can't even imagine how painful that was to watch. <laughs> but, but I was the kid, so I didn't know. To me, it, was, it looked just like the Cardinals. Um, <laughs> the first organized practice I went to, I was in first grade, but there was no team. So they put me on the second grade team because of who I was and who my dad was, figuring the kid can handle it. And I don't. I remember where the practice was. The school is no longer there. Uh, it was at a different school with a with the head of baseball field. I remember it very well, right where it was. And I don't really recall what was happening, except I assume that like most second graders and first graders, we were all just looking at the clouds and you know <laughs> picking daisies instead of doing anything. And at one point, one of the coaches decided to hit a ball out to us in the outfield 
like just to kind of, you know, wake us up. And I, I'm sure they never expected anyone to be in the way of it. And it was coming right to me. And I remember, like, uh, like it was yesterday, looking up in the sky and seeing this baseball come towards me. And I can hear still my mother yelling, get out of the way, because <laughs> it was coming right at me. And I just calmly stuck up my glove and caught it. And it stunned everybody that, that, that a little kid this size caught a regular fly ball. And I knew that night, well, I'm the best player here. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it, it stuck with me right then that, you know, yeah, I would play basketball and football in the street, but I was going to be a baseball player. And like I said, that was my plan right up till uh, my minor league career fizzled out. <laughs> that, that, that was my, 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 my route. That's where I was going. I was going to play baseball and then be a broadcaster. So <laughs> as for the second part, when did it click that I, I kind of knew where I was supposed to be in, in this later part of life? You know, I scuffled along doing a couple of different things in drag racing and in indoor soccer. And in 1997, um, I called a guy by the name of Del Worsham. And he was a funny car driver on the NHRA tour. And I didn't really have a client then. And um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do the next year. I hadn't really made any kind of name for myself in the sport, but I had been around it a while. And I called Dell, and I knew that he and his dad uh, were going to go racing. They didn't have a sponsor, but they had put enough money aside to actually run the full tour. And I explained who I was, and he remembered me. He had met me at the track, but we had never spoken. And he said, sure, we need a PR guy and a manager. Why don't you come with us, and hopefully we can find a sponsor. And uh, this also never happens. A week later... Uh, a sponsor called us <laughs> that just doesn't happen in sports. I mean, you just sponsors don't call you and say, do you want some money? It just doesn't happen, but it did. That was 1997. I have n not left the sport since then. Um, we started out Dell and I started out with a little $200,000 sponsorship, which after we bought uniforms and painted the car was almost gone. And we made an agreement right then. He, I said, you and your dad tune this car and you drive it and I will handle all the PR and all the sponsor work and all the business. And 12 years later, we were up to $2.5 million in sponsorship, running two cars. And we were one of the most successful teams out there. And we had become all kind of mutually famous together. Unfortunately, our sponsor was an auto parts company, and, and they were acquired in a takeover. Um, Checker Auto Parts was, and, and Cragen was, was our sponsor, and O'Reilly Auto Parts bought them out. O'Reilly doesn't sponsor race cars, so we lost our deal. And we all effectively became free agents. And I went immediately to work for another funny car driver uh, by the name of Tim Wilkerson, who's a fantastic guy. And this is, this will be my sixth season with him. But when I joined Dell's team uh, and it worked and he trusted me and literally he and his dad were hands off. It was, I could do whatever I wanted in terms of PR and, and marketing and sponsor work. And it all worked. And we, we became wildly successful. And I knew right then this, I'm made for this. And this is, this is really where I should be, and I've been there ever since. That's really neat. Two great stories. And I have to go back to the relationship, if you don't mind, with your father. Here he is, a professional baseball player at the major league level. You know at the age of six when your mom is telling you to get the heck out of the way, but you catch the ball, and, and that begins that journey. Uh, what was that relationship like? And I mean so from a sort of a, a, a dad playing baseball to a son playing baseball because even today we have these challenges. I've worked a lot in youth sports, uh, Bob, and, and it's always one of those things where what, what is the role of the parent compared to the kid? Now now we have a Major League Baseball player who's your father. How, how was that uh, dynamic between the two of you? Pretty unique. 
Um, and, and for one thing, I, I unfortunately, being the fifth child, I missed out on his major league playing career by a couple of years. So I never got to see him play. Uh, by that time, he was already managing in the minor leagues and uh, all that. But the odd part was he, he was not a real uh, overbearing guy at all. He was m- much more passive when it came to his kids. He just made sure we had every opportunity. And, but he was not the kind of harping father who would stand behind the, the batting cage and yell at you. It just didn't happen that way. Uh, I would say my entire life when he was around, he probably only even offered two or three bits of advice on batting stance or how I swung the bat or anything like that. Um, and, the, and the problem with that was because he was in his career at the time as a scout and a manager, uh, he wasn't around much during baseball season. He was off doing what he had to do. And um, so our, our relationship was really non-baseball. It was winter, a wintertime relationship, and a lot of that was – you know, fires in the fireplace and watching TV together and just enjoying being around each other at that point. So right. um, once I got to be in college and in professional ball, he just became a really happy spectator. Whenever he could see me, he really, really enjoyed it. And I loved having him at the games. Listen, I'm not going to project uh, my feelings and, and, and my thoughts on what you just said onto you, but it's just in terms of what I heard, I think it's very, I think it's an excellent uh, memory there of, of the fact that Hey, yes, of course you knew he was supportive. You could go to him, of course, if he needed help. But that relationship wasn't based around sports. Sports was an avenue, a common denominator, so to say. I've heard a lot of stories, and, and one that comes to mind, a previous interview is Rick Butler. Um, or sorry, Rick Barry. Let me correct myself. One of the previous interviews yep. is Rick Barry, who is now on his has his fifth son playing uh, basketball, and, and this one's a collegiate level. All four, they've all played at the uh, at the highest of levels in professional, and I just remember him saying that even though he may not have agreed with all the coaches that had his sons under <laughs> their tutelage, he he learned very quickly just to step back and say, "Listen, I have a choice here, which is to get involved, and then it might." It might potentially ruin my relationship to a certain point between my children or just sit back like coaches do their thing, just like coaches did their thing with me and enjoy a father-son relationship. So it's really refreshing to hear that from you. And it is a challenge out there today where, and listen, parents, I'm speaking generally. I'm not coming at you. I'm saying this is to work, to, to work on. I have a couple kids myself and trust me, I get it, but is to, is to really find the best place for uh, your child to, to be in, whether it's school arts, sports, and then let them do their job. Because if you're there breathing yep. down their neck, it, 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 I think it, it really kind of ruins that relationship there. So anyway. I, uh, yeah, you know, it's really funny, and it just caused me to think of this. The, the one area in which my dad was really involved and, and kind of authoritarian in trying to be a dad was by the time I was in college, and we were college baseball players, so college baseball players in the 70s. So, uh, you know, we, we had no lack of fun. Let's put it that way. And uh, we all lived in, in rented houses together, a bunch of baseball players. And, and, you know, we made sure we had as much fun as we possibly, possibly could have in college. And I remember him once getting really stern with me and saying, son, I know you guys go out almost every night, but if you haven't hooked up with a girl by midnight, it's not going to happen. So go home. And I remember looking at him and going, dad, I can tell you from personal experience, that's not true. <laughs> And he, he actually cracked up, and he goes, ah, what well, I can't tell you. You guys just be careful. I'm like, yeah, don't worry. We're careful. <laughs> <laughs> 
What a great story. I absolutely yeah. love that. Times have changed, Dad. Times have changed. <laughs> Times have very much changed, probably for the better. <laughs> exactly, right? Now, people don't even go out before midnight now, so that wouldn't be, even be applicable. Anyway, <laughs> right. right? So, uh, no, that's a great story. Well, I'm going to switch topics here for a second, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go towards risky. Uh, I used to say failure, and what was your biggest failure or challenge? But I got away from that, Bob, because I found in sports that, that we didn't take failure as something. We took failure as a, as a disappointment. We took failure as uh, learning. And so I changed it to choices. And as we know, our choices are every day. They're around us and ultimately build the blocks of who we are. Can you share a story of when you had to make a difficult choice, which may have been risky at the time, and why you chose that decision? I can think of a couple of them. The, uh, the first one that comes to mind is, is, is career-related. And I was the general manager of the Kansas City Attack indoor soccer team. I had been brought in there in 1994 literally to save the franchise. They were foundering. They were going under. Um, and I went over there, and we really had a lot of success. We turned it around. I hired some good people. We, uh, we stopped giving tickets away and started selling them, which is always a better way to do business. <laughs> and we kind of put the team on the map, and, and I was kind of the hero. And I was doing really well and enjoying life there. And um, I made some good friends. Uh, I was playing on an amateur baseball team at the age of 39 and doing very well, being a player manager and really having fun. And um, I can remember the day very well. I, we were in the, right near the end of my second season, and I was walking out of the office to go to a sponsor meeting, and my receptionist said, uh, a phone call for you. It's a guy named Whit Bazemore. Now, Whit was a funny car driver at that time uh, and a really pretty interesting guy. And I had known him and done a little bit of freelance work for him in the past. And he had just gotten a major multi-million dollar sponsorship from R.J. Reynolds, which back then the cigarette companies could actually sponsor cars and do advertising. And it became, I knew why, why he was calling. He wanted me to come work for him. And it was a complete out-of-body experience. I literally got in the car. I said, I'll have to call him back. And I got in my car to go to this meeting, and I thought, he's going to offer me a job, and I'm going to take it like an idiot. <laughs> and... And it was as if I was in a movie. I, I, I was as, as if I didn't have control of that. And I had always done this. I had always made these gut decisions. I, 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 my resume is about 12 pages long because early in my career, whatever next opportunity came up, I would often leave a great situation to go risky, riskily take on something new just to see what that was like. And it was total out of body. I, I, just, I knew it was going to offer me a job, and I knew I was going to be a moron and do it. And I did. And I moved to Indianapolis. I resigned as the general manager, uh, moved to Indy, and discovered that away from the racetrack, Witt and I could be really uh, good friends. And he was a fascinating, educated guy. But he was one of those people that at the racetrack, he, he had a game face that was impossible to get along with at the time. He's changed a lot and grown up a lot since then, as, as we both have. But within six months, I, I, well, within a month, I knew I had made a mistake. I shouldn't have left Kansas City. Um, and within six months, I, I had all I could take. And with no job in my hand, basically, I, I quit, uh, knowing that the next opportunity had to be there somewhere. That was a really bad decision. I made it on a gut instinctive level. But the truth is, had I not done that, I never would have gone to work for Del Worsham because that was the next opportunity. So that mistake opened up this career I've had for the last 18 years. So. Not a bad mistake to make. No. At the time, sure seemed like a silly thing to do. But like I said, the dominoes have to fall in a certain order. And the next one with Del Worsham and 12 years with him. So that was a, it all ended up being a, a great thing. A, another mistake that I 
could have made that actually I never would do any different was my four summers when I was in high school. Those are incredibly formative years to be a baseball player. That's when you go from being a little kid to almost being an adult, right? You, you go from being 12 to being 18, right? In that region, that 14 to 18 when you're in high school. So those are really important years for any kid to play as much baseball as possible because that's when you kind of become the player you end up being. For those four summers, instead of playing Legion ball or on any summer traveling teams, instead I went and spent the summer with my dad. Um, two summers in Denver and two summers in Spokane. He was the Texas Rangers AAA manager. Uh, for the first couple of years, I was his bat boy, and then after that, I just kind of, you know, shagged fly balls and hung out with the guys. And I was a little too old to be a bat boy when I was 17. But um, <laughs> I uh, so I, I spent those summers shagging fly balls in Mile High Stadium and Fairgrounds Park in Spokane that you know big league guys were hitting, and I rarely, if ever, even took batting practice. So by the time I graduated from high school and went off to college, I was told by many scouts that as a freshman in college, I was fully capable of playing the outfield in the big leagues right then. I had a cannon for an arm. I could track down any fly ball you hit. Um, my college coach said he had a mountain goat out there in center field that if, if I could reach it, I could catch it. And, uh, but unfortunately, I was way behind as a hitter, and I never really made that up. Um, the reason my, my minor league career ended so badly was that I just couldn't hit. I'm, I was, I was a, there's not much of a need for uh, defensive-oriented outfielders. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not much of a call for them. And you know, I was a 220 hitter. That's all I was with, with no power. And that probably was because of those four summers. Would I go back and not spend those summers with my dad? Not on your life. Uh, those, those were the four best summers of my life. So bad choice in terms of a career, Great choice in terms of my life. Yep. So there you have it. Well, interesting dynamic and the life lessons that are there are so important. And listen, I love the fact that you look back and, and wouldn't change a thing. And then to your for, to your first story, uh, it's it's I always say, and there's other guests on the show have come on, and there's all these different forks in the road. But it sounds a little cliche, but the the forks in the road when you look back, they're they're not forks. They're a straight line, and and like you said, they all happen for a certain reason. So. Uh, good for you for for following <laughs> what your gut instinct was at all times. And sure, maybe not the best choices right then and there. But if you don't keep moving, then you get stuck. And if you get stuck, well, that doesn't go back to your mantra of doing what you love. And that's uh, something very important that we all should remember here at Who Are You Nation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to move on. We're going to move on here into getting into the zone. And one of the things in getting into the zone I like to ask, Bob, is there's a question about communication or a comment, I should say, and then a question to follow. The comment is by George Bernard Shaw, uh, noted for many quotes, but his favorite, and you're in this business a little bit, so you should be able to hopefully uh, have a good story. But his favorite that I love is called, it's the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And so my question for you, Bob, is can you share a story from your career when you're either on the giving, receiving, maybe even witnessing side of miscommunication that ultimately led to an undesirable outcome? Wow. Well, I'm sure there are dozens, (laughs) especially when you're in PR, um, because my role is to be the spokesman for my race team to deliver the messages. And sometimes they're, they're a little touchy, you know, whether you fired a driver and that's a whole bunch of fans favorite guy and. Uh, you have to explain that. I, I think early on in my PR career, I couldn't tell you specifically when, but there were some times when 
we'd have an announcement to make that wasn't necessarily a totally positive one. And if you sugarcoat it too much, people see through it and you lose credibility. So I learned right up front when I got into racing that if the news wasn't necessarily good, the best thing to do was tell the truth and just lay it out there. And people will respect that. Um, and, and we did, you know, I can remember there was one time when we were running two funny cars. So we had one hired driver along with my, my guy, Dell, and, and we decided to make a change. And even though the driver we were letting go was very popular and a good guy and, and a good driver, he was a good friend, but we thought we had a better chance at success by bringing in somebody else. And I danced around how to make that look palatable to the fans and finally realized that just brutal honesty was the way to go. And it, of course, you know, the storm blew over pretty quickly because at least nobody was pointing fingers at us and, and calling us names that we were, you know, a charade or we were lying to them. Mm-hmm. We were just very, very frank about it. And so, like I said, I, I, I couldn't give you too many specific moments, but those are lessons learned. And I carry that with me to this day. That was 12 years ago. But, um, you know, we still make announcements that are to the point and very true. And we don't ever try to sugarcoat bad news. Uh, and that's that's the method to positive communications. I completely agree, and I and I really respect that too. And there's no there's no age uh, I think young enough to learn that because so often it's just ingrained in our human minds that well, I don't know if I'm gonna tell the full story or I might not even tell the story. But uh, the more you practice honesty and getting right out there and to the point, as you mentioned, first of all, we're a forgiving society in nature. But we just want to get it out there. And really, there's nothing else to explain. There might be a couple whys, but there's no sort of getting confused and, 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 and further stirring the pot of what already could be a, a situation where people are a little upset or – are confused. So I really, right. I really like that. And that goes from, geez, we talked about <laughs> girls, girlfriends, relationships, family, work, sports, coaches, and communicating with them as well. And then coaches communicating back with their, with their, uh, student athletes. It's, it's full circle. So definitely, you know, you know I, I, um, I started doing this, like I said, in 1997 and I was the new guy by, by every definition of that term. I was not only new, uh, to the tour, I was new to racing, not just drag racing. I, I was totally the new guy. And now I'm like one of the wily old veterans, although I still feel like the new guy. <laughs> um, and, and I watch these younger kids come up now in their 20s, and this is their first real PR job. And I, you know, I don't mentor anybody unless they ask. It's not my position to tell them you know, how to do this. But when asked, I always tell them that because I, I see it all the time. And that is every positive announcement is spun into the greatest announcement ever. And every bad one is sugarcoated uh, like, Oh, it's not as bad as it looks. And actually a very positive thing that we lost. <laughs> so, right. you know, that's not true. And you're the boy that cries wolf. If every announcement is the biggest one ever, when the biggest one ever comes along, no one's going to believe you. Yep. So th- those are lessons that I, I carry with me to this day that you have to just be, you can't sugarcoat all the disasters and, and you can't overblow the successes. Get a lot of questions offline, uh, Bob, about leadership and, oh, how do I become a leader? And they're typical questions. And of course, there's books and books and webinar series out there. And my simple answer for whatever it's worth is be honest and speak out. Do not hide behind text messages. Do not hide behind email. Just come right out and have human interaction conversations. And listen, there's a time for those other things as well, but you're exactly right. It uh, It's very, very challenging to uh, not uh, sort of follow a leader when that person's stepping up because we do tend to 
kind of stay in the background. <laughs> and yep, that's right. It's uh, it's well said. It's well said. And I love the fact that somebody's got to come ask you to to mentor them. And I tell you out there, who are you, nation? There are so many times when, and listen, I don't know if it's the case with you, Bob, but when we get into a new job, and I remember, hey, I was an intern for the Cleveland Indians back in 1997. I was 21 years old, right out of college, and everybody's going a mile a minute, and you got to stop somebody sometimes and some, hey, do you mind answering this question, or can I follow you around for a little bit? And people are a little bit timid sometimes, and if they don't do it, though, well, where are you going to go? You're never going to learn because it's not going to be right. handed to you. So I think that's great advice in general is do not be afraid because like yourself, very passionate, probably very at, at very organized at work, ready to go right to the next thing, the next thing, next thing. And I can hear that in your voice, but at the same time, you will slow down should somebody ask you a question, especially one that means a lot to him and then her or you. So yep. it's great advice. Well, we're going to head into our timeout segment and then overtime. Timeout is, is I know you've touched on a lot of stories so far, but timeouts are, as you know, and traditionally in sports are to either come together, formulate a plan, settle things down a little bit, or reverse a situation and the momentum that's going along with it. Do you remember recently where you had to call your own personal timeout and reverse the situation and come back stronger? Uh, we've already talked about it. It would have been um, when I woke up one morning yep. and had I knew that I had to call Whit Bazemore and resign. Yep. Not for only for personal reasons because I, our personalities clashed so badly at the time, and uh, you know I needed a timeout. It was not financially a very smart thing to do. Uh, you know my credit cards were maxed out in a hurry. I, I didn't at that age I wasn't really concentrating on saving money, so I was spending every dollar I had. But it was the right thing to do, and I needed that timeout, and it it cleared my head and it allowed me, like, like we said, it allowed that next door to open, which was uh, to go to work for Dell Worsham. So uh, not a proud moment to have to quit a job just because you can't get along with your boss. Um, But but it was a smart one for me. Definitely. How about the team that you're involved with now in the racing? Uh, As a team, I mean, we all have meetings, we all have get togethers, we all have retreats, whatever you want to call them in the business world. But is there ever a time out that everybody sort of takes and comes together and says, let's reevaluate or let's, let's think about what the plan's going to be for this year. And if so, what goes into that? Yeah, well, you know, that, that's where it's kind of great to work for Tim Wilkerson because he is a, uh, people ask me all the time, is he low maintenance? Cause some of these drivers out here, as you might imagine, um, are very high maintenance. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not, not a lot different than rock stars in a lot of ways, right? They're on TV every weekend. They're very famous. They have thousands of fans. That'll build your ego. Um, Tim's ego is non-existent. And I say, no, he's not low maintenance. He's no maintenance. I mean, he is just such a, and he's, he does it all. He is our team owner. He's the crew chief on the car and he's the driver. And he's the only one who does all that. Um, and he's a joy to work for. He's also, a, a, a we, we just match it up so well. He's an Illinois guy, uh, from Springfield, Illinois, just 80 miles up the road from St. Louis. And so, you know, we're from basically the same part of the country. Uh, and, and I can just relate to everything about him and he can relate to me too. So, um, he's the guy in, when I was working for Dell, he's not a very good com- communicator and I would pull the team together generally at the start of the season. Or if the start of the season was just kind of a motivational, let's understand your roles here. If you all do your jobs and keep the drama out of it, we'll be successful. Um, you we each have a position on this team, just like on any regular sport. And it's not the shortstop's uh, responsibility to tell the pitchers how to pitch, right? So it's not the cylinder head guy's responsibility to complain about the guy that does the pistons and rods, right? <laughs> so everybody do your job and do it to the best of your ability and we'll be successful. 
Uh, and then if there was, there was always drama because it's teams and, and it's chemistry. And if there was drama, it would always be on me to kind of pull people together and say, you got to get over this. I'm tired of it. I don't want to hear everybody complaining. I don't want to see the finger pointing anymore. And it try to get that corrected as fast as you could sure. before it festered and became unfixable. Sure. Uh, Tim is that guy. He loves doing that. And he has that meeting right before the season starts and he pulls everybody together. And on these cars, these funny cars, you know, 10,000 horsepower running on nitromethane. And if anything goes wrong, they blow up <laughs> right okay. in his face. Yeah. And, and his point to his guys every year is this is not glamorous. This is not supposed to be necessarily fun. You're strapping me into a bomb. I want to be confident that you're doing your jobs to the best of your ability and you're not distracted. So focus on your jobs when you're bolting this thing together. Because if you set it down the track and it blows up, we're all in this together. So uh, that's his motivational speech to the guys. And, it, and it's just kind of like how serious this is. It, it seems like fun and games because we're drag racers and we're on TV every weekend, but it's not. It's a real job with people's lives Definitely. on the line. So, Well said. So we're going to head into overtime here, have a little fun, ask you some questions. And the first question I have, of course, is have you ever been in a funny car while it's moving? No, and I never will be. There you go. <laughs> no, they are uh, – <laughs> They are they're temperamental beasts, and uh, the, the, the throttle play is, is so little that, that it's really just an on-off switch. There's no way to kind of comfortably just take one down the track as fast as you want to go. Yeah. As soon as you touch the throttle, you're going zero to 300 in four seconds. It's unbelievable. So, no, no desire. No, yeah, I attended one in New Jersey this past summer. My son was completely fascinated by it, and... Uh, well, at least we both didn't go deaf, but we did experience that power behind that that uh, initial, you know, red, yellow, green, and holy mackerel. Right. Um, yep. I'm with you. I'll, I'll sit right by you, and we can talk all day long about it. <laughs> uh, how about a, a, a habit, something constructive, something healthy that you do on a daily basis or weekly basis that our our listeners can learn about and maybe institute and in, integrate into their own lives? Well, I don't know if anybody wants to, you know, everybody's different. I'm an old school guy. I still subscribe to the whatever local newspaper in the town I'm living in. I need to start each day with a newspaper in my hand, flipping pages. That's just how I grew up. I've been a voracious news hound my whole life. Uh, and the benefit now is after I'm done reading the paper, I can then go online and read 12 more. But I got to start with one that's still printed on paper. Right. Uh, and that's just a, a habit of mine. It, I, I, I can't do it every day, especially at the racetrack. Some days we're getting up at 5 in the morning, and you know I'm not going to get up an extra hour early just to sit there and read the newspaper at 4 a.m. <laughs> um, but but uh, whenever I can, I like to do that. I read the um, Currently, my wife and I split time between two homes, one in Minnesota and one here in Spokane, Washington. So I, I started today reading the sports page of the Spokane Spokesman Review, and I, I'll always do that as, as long as I have a, the time and a newspaper to read. There you go. Neat habit for sure, especially as the digital age tries to take over. Yep. Uh, well, you're familiar with this. I just handed you a baseball bat, and I'm going to put you in a major league uniform. As we know, it's now all about the walk-up song. So i got to ask you, what is your walk-up song as you approach the plate to face the pitcher? <laughs> I've thought of this a lot, actually. <laughs> It's not that hard for me to close my eyes and pretend it's all happening again. And we didn't have walk-up songs in the minor leagues. But if we did, uh, my song would be Tom Sawyer by Rush. Uh, it's just, and not because of the lyrics, but just because that song gets me so fired up, especially the opening riffs. And, of course, you only get about 10 seconds of walk-up music, right? And so you don't want a song that kind of starts slow and then fizzles out altogether. Right. You want something that really wakes you up and wakes the fans up. And those opening riffs of Tom Sawyer is one of the greatest songs ever 
ever recorded. So uh, that, that would be my song. Fantastic. We'll put that next to your show notes on your episode and uh, looking forward to go listening to that after our, our interview here. So how about a favorite sports movie? Wow. Now, everything we just talked about is drag racing and baseball. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you that my favorite sports movie is Miracle, uh, uh, about, the, about the Miracle on Ice hockey team. Yeah. I bet I've watched it 50 times. Uh, and having lived in Minnesota for a long time, Herb Brooks is, is still revered. You know, there's a Herb Brooks statue outside the arena where the Minnesota Wild play, and uh, Kurt Russell just channels him in that movie. And, and not only is the story great, and I, I can't, I've watched it 50 times. I'm 57 years old. I have a Kleenex near me when I'm watching that movie, when they win the game against the Russians. I mean, just you can't get through that with a dry eye. It's just phenomenal. And... Um, it, it, but it's just it's just special, and it's so it, the, the story's great. But we all know the story. I'm fascinated by the care they took to make that movie so right, and it's just everything about it is just is just incredibly detailed and incredibly correct. And we see a lot of schlocky movies these days, where unfortunately, you know, you're you're spending the whole movie saying that's wrong, that's wrong. No, the ballpark didn't look like that. No, he didn't bat like that. You know, you're looking for all the mistakes and all the continuity errors. And I mean, Miracle is perfect. And it's my favorite sports movie. I don't know if I'm up to 50, but I'm, I'm going to catch you at one <laughs> point. <laughs> so how about a book that you could recommend to Who Are You Nation? Anything recently or one of your favorites? Yeah, my wife just brought home uh, as a Christmas gift. She was in New York on business and uh, went and saw Billy Crystal on Broadway. And lo and behold, he was signing books during the intermission. And so she bought one and, and had him autograph it for me. It's a guy book. I would not necessarily recommend it for women. It's really a guy book. And I loved every word of it. Um, it's very funny, but very touching, very profound. And he's a terrific writer. And he's a, obviously he's a comedic genius. Um, and it, it, it really, I really related to it also because the, the theme that runs straight through this book, through all the funny stories and all the current and past memories, is that he's getting old. And it's, his whole life is in perspective, and it's all about, you know, he's 60-some years old now, and how much longer is he going to live, and he's watched his parents die, and he's watched his favorite uncle die. and uh, So it's very touching, and maybe even a little depressing, but uh, those are, you know, you, you can't avoid some of those issues. That some, a lot of things about life aren't really anything but depressing, because we all die. Yeah. But uh, great book. I mean, I, I was sad when it was over. You know, you know that type of book, when you, you finish it and you're, you wish you could start over again. Do you remember the name of the book for the show notes? Yeah, uh, Still Fooling Them. Still Fooling Them. I, and I feel like exactly about my own life. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I'm still fooling them. I don't understand it. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> perfect. So you are the host of Who Are You? Life Lessons of Sports, and you just took over my seat here. Who's the first person that you would call upon to interview? Huh, great question. Um, well, there's two guys I find uh, that I really have a lot of respect for and find, and find very fascinating, and they're both in the broadcast field, uh, Joe Buck and Bob Costas. Um for different reasons, Bob Costas, I mentioned earlier that I was an usher back in St. Louis when the ABA had a basketball team there called the Spirits. Bob Costas was a, just graduating from Syracuse where he was a broadcast major, just like I was, and he did the Syracuse basketball team. On a whim, he fired off one of his tapes to this new ABA basketball team, and I've heard this story. It just happened to be the one on the top of the stack. So the owner of the team listened to it. He was good enough. Let's hire this kid. <laughs> That's, cool. That's how Bob Costas got his start. 
So I was fortunate enough when they were on the road to listen to him call those games as a 21-year-old kid, and he was terrific. And uh, he's gone on to have such a fabulous career. He's he's actually one of our advisors on our family charity, um, and we're thrilled to have him on that board of advisors uh, just to lend credibility and his name to us, which just means a lot. Joe Buck, I've always found fascinating because we're kind of contemporaries a little bit in that the, that Cardinal connection. And his, his father, Jack, obviously was a good friend of our family's, uh, knew my parents very, very well. Uh, it's such a great, was such a great classic, gracious man. And Joe could have played the buck card at any time as he was growing up and becoming a professional himself. And instead, he went to the minor leagues and earned his credibility that way as his own man and as, as his own announcer. Uh, I don't know why people have such strong feelings about the announcers who are on TV, and, and I don't think there's any particular sports announcer on TV that everybody thinks is great, but I think Joe Buck is great. Mm-hmm. And he made sure he did that the right way. I would love to pick his brain about coming up and you know what it was like being a Buck as opposed to being a Wilbur. <laughs> That'd be a great conversation, I can tell, one that you look forward to. So you just mentioned it, but please share your foundation that your family has so we can learn a little bit more about it and how to connect. Yeah, it's called the Perfect Game Foundation. Uh, and uh, the re- it, it's in the memory of our two wonderful parents who gave us all of these opportunities. And my brother Dell and I, uh, as we looked back on our parents and the wonderful lives we've had, uh, you know, all these doors opened for us because of our last name. Um, yet there are really talented kids out there who are passionate and dedicated who can't get a foot in the door because nobody knows them. You know, it's a who you know deal. Yep. And wouldn't it be great to help them? So we started with a focus on baseball, but we're widening now to other sports. And it's not on the field. It's off the field stuff. If, if these kids send us letters and applications about why they want to work uh, in the front office or in the organization for a baseball or football or basketball team, mostly baseball, and, uh, and you know, all they need is a chance. And our foundation has wonderful relationships with a number of baseball teams. The Minnesota Twins were the first to come on board and – Dave St. Peter, who is the president of the Twins, uh, was the first advisor to sign on, and he was great uh, about it. And he actually really did a lot of hard work for us and got some doors open for us. So our, our role now is when we, we get an application that we like and we think the, the kid's got a future, just needs that chance, we get, we get them the chance. We get them an internship. After that, it's on them. Yep. You know, If they fail, they fail. But internships are great ways to get your foot in the door and make a name for yourself and make a career for yourself. And, and that's the mission of the Perfect Game Foundation. As part of that, I, I write my Bob on Baseball blog there. Uh, and if anybody wants to take a look at the website, uh, donate to us. Of course, that's always great. Or read Bob on Baseball. You can just Google the Perfect Game Foundation, or you can Google Bob on Baseball. It'll pop right up. Great, great. Well, that was going to be my next question is how do we communicate with you? And it sounds as though those are maybe the best two ways. Yeah, um, and I also write a blog on uh, nhra.com. Um, I'm the only non-driver to write a blog. Uh, the rest are either written by drivers or ghostwritten for them, as is the case in a lot of sports. Um, I've been writing it now for over eight years as the only non-driver on there. And it's just uh, the last thing it's about is statistics and race car facts, because yep. uh, that's all everywhere. You can get that on TV. Exactly. It's about what it's like 
to do what I do, to live this life. And sometimes I can go three or four installments without even mentioning a race car. It's just about my life, where I live, our cats, uh, my wife, uh, what, you know, the great dinner we had last night. What, it's just a rambling stream of consciousness blog. And I'm proud to say we've been, geez, we've been doing it now, like, like I said, for a long time, and eight years, and, oh gosh, probably written 2,000 installments, and probably now closed in on 3 million hits. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was a life-altering deal when the edit- editor-in-chief at NHRA.com brought this up. And originally, we were going to write these blog things, because nobody really heard of them yet, 2005 or whenever I started this thing. And he said, we're going to do it for the whole month of August. And I remember thinking, oh, there ain't no way I've got enough material to write this for a whole month. <laughs> and here we are eight years later. But he challenged me. He said, all right, you're going to be the one guy who writes it as yourself, and I want to see if a guy that nobody ever heard of can write about stuff nobody cares about and keep them entertained. Yep. And it's worked. I'm, I'm the number one blogger on the site. So <laughs> kind of fun. Been, it's been life-altering. I now sign autographs at the racetrack and people yell my name from the stand. So. Oh, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's yep. the cats. It's the cats that you write about. <laughs> what are your cats' I, I'll names? I'll tell you what. Th- there are a couple people out there who make fun of the, the, all the pictures of the cats. Yeah. And yet the number one complaint I get via email it's people saying you haven't shown the cats enough. There you go. That's, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're superstars. If I could ever take them to the racetrack, they could sign a lot of little paw autographs. <laughs> well, always animals. They're, they're always sticky in their own right. So yep. that's, uh, that's great. I love the cats. Well, I know where I'm subscribing after this show. I'm going to definitely check it out and, and learn a little bit more about your insights, your family, and then, of course, the way you see the sport in general. So I do have one last question for you, Bob, but I do want to say before I ask, it's just been an honor and a privilege to speak with you today. I know our listeners are already well aware, but they can check out our website, whoareyousports.com. Listen to this interview again, find the links to everything we've spoken about, the book, resources, your inspirational mantra and quote, contact information with the blog and the foundation that your family has supported and of course continues to this day. So Bob, I want to congratulate you. I know you've bounced around a little bit and followed your love, but you are now officially on another team, which is the Who Are You Nation team, and I want to welcome you personally. It's an honor. I'm pleased to do it. Yeah, thank (laughs) Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I did say I have one last question, and I ask all of my guests for a second here to pull back the curtain. We've talked a lot on the show about a lot of stories, but my last question for you is, could you share a story with us? This is one that maybe your family knows. Maybe it's your close friends know, but if somebody doesn't ask you, Bob, you're just never going to tell it because it's just not going to come up. And so could you share a story with us to let you in, to let our listeners into your life a little bit more and let us know a story. It might be an encounter, something that happened that was just the most amazing encounter and meeting you've ever had or somebody you met, or just one of those moments where you sit there and go, wow, that was fun. That was lucky. And that was neat. We leave to get in our rental car, and one of the members of the Yankee contingent says, can I get a ride back to the Hyatt? Sure, hop on in. And I turned to him and I said, Yogi, I don't know if we've ever met, but I know you know my dad. <laughs> and for the next 20 minutes in the car, I have Yogi Berra tell Del Wilbur stories to me. Um, and that was a surreal kind of, nobody's going to believe this moment. Who are you, Nation? Our guest is ready to go inside the locker room. Are you... Gain exclusive access to the story as well as those from all of our guests. Visit whoareyousports.com where there is a page dedicated especially for all of our listeners at Who Are You Nation. Until next time, please remember both in sports and in life that it's not all about the scoreboard so much as it is about our dedication to becoming a better teammate, healthier person, 
and adopting an efforts over results mindset.